Hi everyone, welcome to another Cheetah Girls podcast. In today's episode, we are going to review several multicultural and social justice competencies, theories, and models that are not only important for professional counselors, but also for teaching counselors and training. So beyond our ACA ethical responsibility to honor diversity and to promote social justice and our KCREP training in social and cultural diversity, the ACA set forth in 2015 the Multicultural and Social Justice Counseling Competencies. And this, the MSJCC was a revised the multicultural counseling competencies as an opportunity to offer counselors a framework to implement multicultural and social justice competencies into counseling theories, practices, and research. You might remember that there is a really nice visual of the multicultural and social justice counseling competencies. It is a colorful circle and there are four quadrants. And if you think about it like a compass, north, south, east, and west, the north-south is the axis of privileged counselor and marginalized counselor. And the east-west is the axis for privileged client and marginalized client. These quadrants are used to highlight the intersection of identities and the dynamics of power, privilege, and oppression that influence the counseling relationship. The different developmental domains reflect the different layers that lead to multicultural and social justice competence. First, counselor self-awareness. Second, client worldview. Third, counseling relationship. And fourth, counseling and advocacy interventions. Embedded in the domains are the following aspirational competencies, attitudes and beliefs, knowledge, skills, and action. With ethics, training, and competencies in mind, there are several notable multicultural and social justice theories that can also guide a counselor's practice. In today's podcast, I am going to review four multicultural counseling and social justice theories. And the first is the multicultural counseling and therapy theory that was developed by Sue, Ivy, and Pedersen in 1996. In summary, this theory emphasizes a collective approach to counseling and counselor training. The theory believes that the effectiveness of counseling is enhanced when the strategies are consistent with the cultural background of the client. The theory also believes that counselors should move toward playing a role in the liberation of consciousness instead of repairing or correcting. The first theory is multicultural counseling and therapy theory, Sue, Ivy, and Pedersen. 1996. The second theory that can guide a counselor's work is feminist theory. And feminist theory grew out of a sense of dissatisfaction 
with the way in which traditional theories of counseling and psychology incorporated the lived experiences of women and people of color. Feminist theory emphasizes the ways in which social oppression, whether it be racism, classism, ethnocentrism, or sexism, contributes to the mental health problems that clients present. The theory argues that survival responses under these oppressive conditions are often mistaken for pathology and that the goal of counseling is to provide clients with a variety of ways to address the various oppressive conditions that they experience in their life. So that's feminist theory. The third theory is critical race theory. And critical race theory describes how the forces of racism have become institutionalized in the policies, practices, and structures of institutions. It's a framework to understand the institutional barriers that our clients experience in their lives. Critical race theory analyzes and challenges mainstream narratives in law, history, and popular culture that uphold the status quo. That's critical race theory. And lastly, community psychology of liberation. So psychology of liberation uh, questions the assumed relevance of generally accepted methods to study and intervene with the marginalized. Those whose voices are not present among our theoreticists, researchers, and practitioners. Psychology of liberation suggests that mental health practitioners need to step outside of their socialization of our professional fields in order to recognize what needs to be done and to transform the world. One specific theorist who, a, a big proponent of psychology of liberation, is Martine Barrow, 1994. And he states that there are three essential elements to the psychology of liberation. First, a new horizon. A person or group's context is essential to understanding their reality for intervention and research. The second element, essential element, is new ways of seeking knowledge. They must emerge from the experience of the oppressed so that truth can be discovered and built. We need to revitalize the knowledge and critically review it to determine its usefulness and validity for the people that we serve. And lastly, a new praxis. Involved, he argues that we involve ourselves in praxis with community members that will help us understand not just what it is, but what is possible. And it brings to the forefront the issue of power and including our clients in participatory research. So again, there are four theories that could potentially guide a counselor's work. The multicultural counseling and therapy theory, Sue, Ivy, and Pedersen, 1996. Feminist theory, critical race theory, and community psychology of liberation. And finally, there are, there are also several important multicultural and social justice models that can, that can inform a counselor's practice. The first is the addressing model. 
And the addressing model um, was created by Hayes, 1996. And it addresses the nine main cultural influences that counselors need to consider when working with clients. Hayes recommends using it as a framework to examine biases and inexperiences and to consider the salience of multiple cultural influences on clients. So the addressing model is A-D-R-E-S-S-I-N-G. And the A means age, D refers to disability, R refers to religion, E refers to ethnicity and race, S social status, second S sexual orientation, I indigenous heritage, N national origin, and G gender. So the addressing model is, again, a way for counselors to conceptualize um, their, their experiences with their clients um, using those nine cultural factors. The second model that counselors can use in their practice or to inform their practice is the cultural context model. And I believe it's Alameda 1981. I hope I said that correctly correctly. And what the cultural context model says is that therapy is a journey of liberation and healing instead of a journey toward renewed compliance and acquiescence to society's everyday oppressive expectations. Liberation is a key component of the healing process. It is an expanded family therapy paradigm that gives clients a new awareness of the societal patterns that contribute to their presenting concerns. And the fundamental goal of the cultural context model is to dismantle power imbalances and restructure the power. This particular model believes that change occurs at the family community intersection and that it positively impacts both. And there are seven components to this model, orientation, sponsorship, socio-education, this is when conscious raising discussions occur, culture circles, and these are the primary therapeutic vehicles in this model, the family process, graduation, and community advocacy. It is important um, for counselors to know that it is not important to replicate this entire model completely. It's perfectly okay to use pieces of it. And it does sort of remind me of our UP protocol where you can sort of pick and choose what might be something worthwhile to bring into the therapeutic relationship. And then the final two models that can be used to inform a counselor's practice are our racial identity models. And so the first uh, racial identity model is the people of color racial identity model. And that was um, created by Helms, 1995. And the second is the white racial identity model, also created by Helms, 1995. And so before describing these identity models in more detail, it is important to remember that these are the racial identity schemas that act as the cognitive and affective filters that individuals use to process and incorporate into their overall identity the race re- to 
incorporate into their overall identity the race-related information to which they are exposed. And with that in mind, it's also important to note that not everyone moves through, through these stages. So the first model, People of Color Racial Identity Model, Helms 1995, has five stages. The first stage is conformity. And this is where there is a preference for the values and norms of the dominant culture and the assumption of sameness. The second stage is dissonance. This is when there is an incident of racial injustice or discrimination that is jarring and prompts a rethinking and questioning about the salience of race. The third stage is immersion and this is where becoming ethnocentric with one's racial or ethnic group is of utmost importance. The fourth stage is internalization, and this is where um, one becomes secure in their racial identity, such that one can question rigid resistance attitudes. And the final stage is integrative awareness. This is when a person progresses through all stages and arrives at a point of both secure racial identity and sensitivity to all forms of oppression, as well as being open to the constructive elements of the dominant culture. So that particular model, the people of color racial identity model, would be helpful for informing a counselor's um, practice in working with clients of color. The last um, model that we're going to discuss is the white racial identity model, also Helms 1995. This particular model has six stages, whereas the people of color identity model had five. The first stage is contact, where the individual has no aware awareness of being a racial being and is completely oblivious to racism. The second stage is disintegration. And this is where an individual becomes conflicted as they become more aware of racism and some of the moral dilemmas that it poses. Third stage, reintegration. This is where an individual will pull away from their new awareness because of increased discomfort. Fourth stage, pseudo-independence. This is where an individual moves to an intellectual understanding of race and seeks contact, contact with people of color who are similar to them. The fifth stage is immersion. And this is where the individual finally confronts white privilege and explores self as a racial being in ways that include the affective. So we're not just in a cognitive place, we're now in the affective as well. And lastly, autonomy. This is where an individual exhibits more comfort with the experiential reality of race and is committed to work toward abandonment of white privilege. So in today's um, episode, we have explored multicultural and social justice competencies, theories, and models. First, the multicultural and social justice competencies, RATS et al. 2015. We explored four different uh, multicultural and social justice counseling theories, multicultural counseling and therapy theory, Sue, Ivy, and Pedersen, 1996, feminist theory, critical race theory, 
and community of community psychology of liberation. And then finally, we also explored four different models that could be used to inform a counselor's practice. The addressing model, Hayes, 1996. The cultural context model, Alameda, 1981. People of color racial identity model, Helms, 1995. And white racial identity model, Helms, 1995. Take care.